Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 17, where you will find our sermon text for this morning. And uh, before we read that passage, let us pray together. Our Father, we, we long to see your glory more fully. And we know where it is found. It is found in the face of your Son, Jesus. And so we pray that you would give us a glimpse of Jesus this morning as we, as we open up your word, as we read it, as we hear about it. We pray that you would give us a glimpse of our Savior, that we would see him in all of his greatness, in all of his glory, that we would worship him, that we would be conformed a little more to his image. Be glorified, Father. Uh, strengthen us to hear and strengthen me to speak. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased." so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked, rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. 
and they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. A child born with a sickness that will cause her to suffer her whole life long. An elderly couple is killed in a flood in Houston. A plane is shot down, killing 298 passengers. A teen and his uncle are shot without any explanation. It's hard to understand life sometimes. It's even harder to explain it. Situational evil is a reality that we deal with daily. Whether the pain we deal with because of other people's sins or the pain we deal with simply because of life in a fallen world. And yet there are lies that we tell ourselves that actually make the evil that we experience, the pain that we experience, worse. There are lies that that make the reality of situational evil even more oppressive to our souls. And it's always horrible, of course, when these kinds of things happen, but there are lies that we tell ourselves that make the experience of it even worse more unbearable. There's the lie that God is not with us, that that I'm alone in this, that this tragedy is is on me and I'm alone in the midst of it. There's the lie that it's never going to end, that I'm trapped, that this pain is forever and is not going to stop. There's the lie that, that my mundane actions really do nothing in the grand scheme of things, that I'm useless, I'm powerless in the midst of these trials. Well, there are some truths from our passage this morning that speak into those lies. We're going to talk about those under three headings. We're going to talk about the presence of someone glorious, the promise of something glorious, and the glorious fruit of simple obedience. I think the outline for that should be on the back of your bulletin. Uh, You should feel free to turn there. The presence of someone glorious, the promise of something glorious, and the glorious fruit of simple obedience. We'll start with the presence of someone glorious. Well, our passage begins uh, not down in the valley of trouble and toil, but up on the mountain. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he leads them to a high mountain, just the four of them. And while they're there, Jesus is transfigured. His face shines like the sun. His clothes become white as light. It's reminiscent of Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses, you may remember, at one point takes Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, uh, two-thirds at least, up the mountain. And later when Moses comes down the mountain, his face shines, reflecting the glory of God that he saw on the mountain. Now there are differences here, of course. 
Uh, For one, Jesus has not been talking with God. His face is not reflecting the glory of another. This is Jesus' own glory shining through. Jesus is the God-man. Peter, James, and John are getting a glimpse of the intrinsic glory of Jesus. Now, glory is, is, is a word that has deep meanings and connotations, and, but in essence, at its simplest, it's a synonym for greatness. Jesus' greatness is literally shining through in this passage. For a moment, the curtain of the world is, is pulled back, as it were, and Jesus is seen for who he is. And so that we have an idea of just what this glory means, what Jesus' glory is, God sends to Jesus Moses and Elijah. Now Moses and Elijah are standing there with Jesus. They're talking with Jesus. You have here the the prototypical lawgiver in the Old Testament, Moses, and the, the preeminent prophet, Elijah. Moses and Elijah stand there for, for all that has come before all the law and all the prophets. And why are they there? Well, they're there because Jesus has been fulfilling the law and the prophets in his incarnation, in his life, in his ministry. And he is about to head toward Jerusalem where the law and the prophets will come to their climax, their culmination in his death and resurrection. Jesus' glory is that he is the one who fulfills all of Scripture that has come before by dying for sin, by conquering death in his resurrection. Peter misses it, as we often do. Uh, He suggests making three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, on the surface, this equates the three men. Peter misses that Moses and Elijah are there to honor the one who has come to fulfill all that they hoped for. That Jesus is not simply a man like they are, even simply a great man like they are. There is something more Peter misses, though, because Peter offers to make three tents or three tabernacles. It's the word used uh, of the wilderness tabernacle, of the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people elsewhere in the New Testament. And the irony, of course, is that God is there standing in Peter's midst, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and Peter misses it. He offers to make God with us, the one who came, according to John, to tabernacle among us, he offers to make the tabernacle a tabernacle. And so the Father cuts him off. The the, the glory cloud of God covers them, and out of that cloud the Father speaks. He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. As if to say to Peter, you're you're missing it, Peter. The beloved son stands in your midst. The Messiah, the suffering servant. Quit your yapping and, and listen to him. That this voice, the disciples are terrified. They fall on their faces. But Jesus touches them. Glorious son touches them in his kindness. He he lays a gentle hand on their shoulder. And says, rise and have no fear. The glorious Son of God is tender with his fearful children. Now, you might think, well, that's great for Peter, James, and John. Uh, This is Jesus on the mountain. Uh, These are his disciples on the mountain. This is the quintessential mountaintop experience. 
but I need Jesus here in the mundane, in the everyday, in the ordinary. That's where I struggle. That's where I suffer. That's where I need God to meet me, not up on some mountain somewhere. And while Peter wanted uh, to hold on to this mountaintop experience, to hang out in tents for a while, it's this glorious Jesus that came down off of the mountain into the valley of the shadow of death. And what was waiting for him there? A man whose son was sick and demon-possessed, assaulted by fire and water, stereotypes in the Old Testament for, for the evil that we experience in the world. So the glorious sun comes down off the mountain to, to meet us in the midst of our troubles. Now in the end of Matthew, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus is preparing to ascend up to the Father. And in the Gospel of John, he has this long uh, discourse saying that it's good for him to go, that he would send another helper to their side. And in sending the Spirit, Jesus comes Himself to be with us. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always. Again, Jesus descends to come and be with us, to come and be in our midst. The glorious Son rises up into heaven, sits at the right hand of the throne of God, and then pours out the Spirit of new life on His church. And so He comes to be with us. He comes to be with His church. He comes to be with you. Jesus, the King of glory, comes to be with His church by His Spirit, which means, again, that He is with you in the midst of life. He is present. Jesus says, again, you remember in John, He says it's actually better for Him to go so that He could come and be with you in this way. Now, while Jesus is with us, life, as we experience it, is is a battle for, for glory. It's a battle for the the glory of truth as we battle and argue to be right. It's a battle for the glory of beauty as we groom ourselves and try to keep up in appearance or surround ourselves with beautiful things or beautiful people. The glory of goodness as we try to maintain our own righteousness or at least that we are somehow better than the next guy. As we fight these battles, as we try to gain glory uh, by being right or doing right or looking good, We are in those battles alone. But when life happens and struggles come and suffering creeps in to our well-ordered lives, when we are caught in the lie, when our beauty fails us and our sinful hearts are exposed, we realize that all the glory that we have surrounded ourselves uh, with simply fizzles away and we are left alone and hungry for glory, empty, sometimes angry and despairing. Well, it's the glory of Jesus that can satisfy. He alone is always true. He alone is always good, always beautiful. And He has come to be with you in the midst of your struggles. And He promises to dwell inside of His people, to never leave us or forsake us. Jesus is the glorious Son in our midst. Delight in Him. Desire Him. Get to know Him. Commit yourself to the glory that will not fade. And you will find that He will commit Himself to you. And whatever your struggles, He he will be there with you to comfort you, to guide you, to satisfy. His glory will break through the mundane 
as we set our eyes on Him in the midst of our struggles. Now, this passage not only tells us about the presence of someone glorious, but also about the promise of something glorious. As Jesus is coming down the mountain, he has a discussion with the disciples. They, they ask about Elijah. They say, if Jesus is the Messiah, what about Elijah? Where's Elijah? Isn't he supposed to come first? What about the restoration of all things? Now, the last verse of the Old Testament uh, says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Of course, according to Jesus, Elijah did come. But instead of repenting, the religious leaders rejected him. The political leaders put him to death. Jesus uses this as an opportunity to remind them that he too must suffer. The glorious son came not to conquer with a sword, but to suffer at the hands of evil men and then be raised from the dead. And it's at this point that Jesus and his disciples come upon a crowd. A, a man comes up to them, he, he kneels before Jesus and pleads with him in verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. Now, whatever was wrong with this boy, and it's, and it's really not clear, the disciples couldn't fix it. And Jesus expresses what at least looks like frustration or maybe some other emotion in verse 17. Jesus says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus then rebukes the demon and the boy is healed instantly. The glorious sun, again, comes down off the mountain into the valley and he conquers evil. And he brings the restoration that John's ministry seemingly failed to bring because of the people's rejection of him. And he does what the disciples failed to do, which leaves the disciples confused. And they come to Jesus privately, uh, maybe because they're a little bit embarrassed. And they ask him, why could we not cast it out? Now remember, they had likely cast out demons before. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So why not now, they're saying. Jesus answers, because of your little faith. Now this has been kind of a steady theme in Matthew for a number of chapters. The disciples have little faith. They are afraid. They doubt again and again and again. Now it's a little bit confusing though what Jesus means by little faith here because in the very next verse Jesus talks about the faith the size of a mustard seed which moves mountains. That's not much faith. So the question is do the disciples have less faith than that of a mustard seed? Right? Is Jesus talking about proportions here? And there are some in Christianity who, who take Jesus' words to mean, if you have just an ounce of faith, you can literally do anything. And, and by that they mean uh, you can cast out all demons and heal all sicknesses. Uh, these are the people, you may have had someone say this to you, that, that um, if you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. They think they're accurately quoting and applying Jesus' words, but that's not exactly what Jesus is saying here. Jesus' words, you may notice, have a number of figures of speech in them. 
To understand what he's saying, we have to tease those out. So Jesus talks about faith like a grain of mustard seed. So we have a simile right away. Well, how is faith like a grain of mustard seed? We assume it's in its smallness, and that's probably right. But even if we say Jesus is talking about small faith, what does that mean? Because that, too, is not literal. Faith is not something that you can hold in your hand. What does it mean that it's small? Even that's a figure of speech. Well, the other Gospels tell us that that Jesus also says here about this demon that this kind can only come out by prayer. And many commentators say that the problem is the disciples, rather than relying on God's power through prayer, had begun to think that they could do this themselves. They relied on technique or they relied on their past performance rather than relying on the Father through prayer. The problem then, of course, was not that these men were not exercising, uh, it's not that they had little faith. The problem is they were not exercising faith in God at all. Uh, They were trusting in something, of course, but they were trusting in their own power, in their own ability to say the right words, to do the right things, to cast out this demon. Their little faith in this case was really non-existent faith in that moment. Hence that the next statement, right? If you would just exercise some faith, any little bit of faith, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and nothing will be impossible for you. Of course, that brings us to the next figure of speech, doesn't it? I don't know of many people who take Jesus' words here literally. There aren't many uses for literally moving literal mountains unless you're trying to Uh, put a road in or something like that. Jesus could be using hyperbole, right? Simple exaggeration for the sake of emphasis, talking about the biggest thing he could think of. It could be, as some have said, that that a mountain is simply a, a metaphor for a large, insurmountable thing. So 1 Corinthians 13 talks about the faith that moves mountains. But perhaps there is more. The image of a mountain is is often used in the Old Testament for a nation. The image of a mountain being moved is used for the destruction of nations, like we read in Jeremiah. Jeremiah uses the image of a mountain to refer uh, being moved to refer to the destruction of Babylon, that great nation. And that image reappears in, in Revelation chapter 8 as well for the same kind of thing. A mountain being moved in Scripture is, 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 is a metaphor, it's figurative language, to talk about the wicked forces against us being thrown down. It's, it's the overthrow of evil, right? The great mountain Babylon is thrown down and burned. Jesus is saying that if you believe in me, evil itself will be overthrown. Now, Jesus is not saying, if you believe in me, everything will be honky-dory from here on out. Right? He, he's saying that God will use his people to overthrow evil. God will use you to bring the reign of evil to an end. Right? The, point is if, the point is not if you believe really, really hard, then you can fly like Peter Pan. Right? You can, nothing will be impossible for you. That's not the point. The point is that God is going to work through his people as they trust him to overthrow evil in the world. 
Jesus promises that, that by faith in him, the glorious son who, who came to suffer in our place, evil will be overthrown. Mountains will be moved. The ultimate overthrow of evil, of course, comes at the end. Jesus just predicted his suffering while coming down the mountain. And in the very next verses, Jesus says this again. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus says the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. See, even as Jesus says mountains will be moved and nothing will be impossible, he says he's going to be delivered over, killed, and then raised. See, Jesus' view of living by faith is not uh, faith healing or name it and claim it. It's not tell God what you want and, and aim high and, and believe. Jesus' view of living by faith is actually that suffering comes first and then glory. Death and then resurrection, the cross and then the crown. See, it's at the resolution of the story when all evil is done away with and the characters live happily ever after. But we are not at the resolution of the story. We're not at the end. We are not at the happily ever after. We are in a time of, of suffering that precedes glory, a time of taking up our cross, as Jesus said at the end of chapter 16, that precedes receiving our eternal reward. And so we have to be careful here because on the one hand, if you believe in God, he will use you to overthrow evil. That is true. Paul says in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God works through his people but he works through his people in the same way that he worked through his son. Right? Jesus is going to suffer, and through his suffering and difficulty, conquer the evil one. Now, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. See, according to Paul, how does God work life through us? How does he conquer evil through us? By working death in us. When Jesus says mountains will be moved and nothing will be impossible, he isn't promising a life of ease, but he is promising the eventual overthrow of evil. As the book of Revelation pictures, Jesus will return and evil will be overthrown. Our great enemies of sin and Satan and death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. As we trust him, mountains will be moved. Evil will be conquered. We have the hope of a glorious future. Our troubles will come to an end. Paul, who suffered much for the gospel, as we just read, said later on in that same chapter in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Is life difficult? Yes, yes, it is. But we have the promise of something glorious to come. 
Now, we might think that the fact of some future paradise with no evil or sadness or tears or whatnot, that doesn't change what I'm going through right now. And that's true. I would not want in any way to belittle the difficulty or the suffering that you might be experiencing at this moment. But the fact that it will end should give you at least hope in the midst of that trouble. Just yesterday, Deborah was home with the boys, and uh, we were talking on the phone. I was here working on this sermon. And, uh, you know, it can be hard sometimes to manage uh, four little boys. It's not an insurmountable difficulty, of course, but, it, but it's real, right? It can be tough. And we were discussing my plans, and uh, she said, well, that, that gives me hope, at least, knowing when you're going to be home. See, hope doesn't take away from whatever trouble we experience, but it gives us the power to look beyond it. See, trouble often makes us myopic, right? It it makes us short-sighted. In the midst of difficulty or pain, we can't see anything beyond the pain. All we can see is the suffering. All we can see is the difficulty. All we can see is the trial. Hope gives us a broader vision, the power to persevere, because there's something more, something better coming. Well, we've looked at uh, the presence of something glorious and the promise of something glorious, and we're going to look at one more thing, the glorious fruit of simple obedience. Now, after Jesus has this little interaction with his disciples, they come to Capernaum. Uh, Some tax collectors come to Peter, and they ask him in verse 24, does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, to understand this, we need to know what this tax is for. These are not civil taxes. This is the temple tax. This is a religious tax. This is a tax that pays for the upkeep of the temple, God's temple. Apparently, these tax collectors thought that Jesus was behind on his taxes, and so they politely approached Peter. Now, Peter, always slow to think and quick to speak, And wanting to defend his master says, "Uh, yes, of course, Jesus pays the temple tax. Jesus is a, a good Jew. He's a good teacher. He's a good worshiper of Yahweh. Of course, he pays the tax. Peter, of course, has once again missed the point. And when Peter comes into the house, Jesus speaks first. He says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Peter responds, of course, from others. So Jesus concludes in the next verse, then the sons are free. What is this little exchange about? Well, Peter just heard a voice from heaven, just a you know, few verses earlier. He heard a voice from heaven saying that Jesus is the beloved son, well-pleasing to the Father. If Jesus is the unique son of the Father, should the Father tax him for the maintenance of his house? Jesus is the Son of God. The sons are free, meaning sons of kings don't have to pay taxes. Therefore, the conclusion that Peter didn't draw is that Jesus doesn't have to pay the temple tax. Peter, in his zeal for Jesus, in chapter 16, rebuked Jesus when he said he was going to suffer. And he now, quote, defends Jesus, showing he completely misunderstands what it means that Jesus is the Son. Peter doesn't understand either Jesus' suffering or his glory. Jesus, though, 
knowing that not paying the tax could be misunderstood as, as rebellion against God or a statement about God's house, God's temple, and not wanting to cause such offense to people, he tells Peter to pay the tax. But he does it in maybe the oddest way possible. I guess you could think of odder ways, but it's pretty odd. Jesus tells Peter to cast a hook into the sea, catch a fish, and retrieve a coin out of its mouth, and use that coin to pay the temple tax. On any reading, it's a little bizarre. Peter is to throw a hook, throw in a hook, pull out a fish, pull out a coin, and use it to pay the tax for the temple. Well, at its simplest, right, Jesus tells Peter to use his ordinary vocational skills, right? Remember, Peter is a fisherman, after all. And yet, through those ordinary vocational skills, Jesus brings forth something extraordinary for the upkeep of God's house. Remember, it's the temple tax. So, through his ordinary skills, God uses Peter to build up his house. So one application from this might be simply that as we listen to Jesus, as the voice commanded earlier in the chapter, and as Peter did, here at least, in living out, we assume, although we don't really know if he went and fished, but we assume he did. As we listen to Jesus in living out our daily vocations unto Jesus, right, in obedience to Jesus, that God will use that to bear fruit for his kingdom. To put it differently, simple obedience to Jesus in the mundane is the context in which Jesus builds his church. Faithfully living out our worldly callings is one big way in which God is doing his work in the world. Now, you may wonder, well, how is that? How is he doing his work in the world? I mean, if I'm a garbage man, you know, and I'm collecting garbage, how is God doing his work through that or, or whatever your calling might be? Well, th- there are a couple ways. Uh, the first is that your worldly calling, whatever that is, is one of the big ways that you express love to those around you. Right? As you do your job, you are serving those around you. Your garbage man is serving you. And if he didn't, you would be in trouble. Because you'd have a lot of garbage right, in your house. As you do your job, whatever it is, you're serving those around you. You are expressing love to the people around you. Loving service is one, one of the big ways in which we bear witness to King Jesus. A second, as you live out your calling uprightly and faithfully with trustworthiness, honoring your boss or taking care of your employees or whatever it might be, you're bearing witness to the work of Jesus in your life as you honor him in the way you live out your calling. Now, there may be another reason Jesus uses this imagery of pulling out a coin from a fish's mouth. Uh, You may remember earlier, we we read a longer passage in Jeremiah 51 which talks about Babylon as a mountain that will be thrown down. But Babylon there is also compared to a sea monster that has swallowed up Israel. It's it's translated monster in the ESV, but it's sea monster. It's talking about everywhere else it's sea monster. Babylon is compared to a sea monster that has swallowed up Israel. And God says at the end of that, the section that we read, that he will take Israel out of Babylon's mouth and restore her to the land. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus is continuing to give a picture of how, he, how we participate in the overthrow of evil. 
Peter, in his mundane vocation, throws a hook into the sea, pulls out a fish, gets out a coin, pays the temple tax, and participates thereby in the upkeep of God's house. And in that way, God overthrows evil as his, in, in his plan to destroy the people of God because God is building his church. And as we work for Jesus in our mundane callings, Jesus uses that to demonstrate his love, to build the church, and so overthrow the evil one. Either way, I mean, the this, this simple faithfulness to your work, obedience to Jesus in your daily tasks, fights back against the evil one. It manifests a, a, a little more of Jesus' glory as we reflect his image to the world in our work. And can even be a means Jesus uses to build his temple, the church. You are not alone in your pain. Though there is suffering and difficulty in the world, you're not alone in it. Jesus, the glorious Son, came to suffer with and for us, and he is now present with his people in their suffering. You're not trapped, because the pain will not last forever. Jesus has promised a glorious end to all pain at his return. Trust him, wait for him, look to him. And you're also not helpless. Jesus uses our simple obedience in the mundane of life to shine forth his glory and to build his church. Do you see Jesus as the glorious son who suffered in our place and rose from the dead, ascended into heaven and poured out his spirit on us? Listen to him and through you, he will build his church. Let's pray. Jesus, we we praise you We praise you as the glorious Son of God, uh, as the beloved Son, the unique Son, the one, the only one who is well-pleasing to the Father. We confess, Jesus, that we have not imitated you, our elder brother. We have not been well-pleasing to our Father. We thank you that you came to suffer and die, that we might have forgiveness so we might have fellowship with the Father, not on our own merits, but through you. And we thank you that you promised to use us. You promised to use us in the mundane things of life, in the routine, as we go about our daily tasks. You promised to use us to represent you. And we pray that you would give us a boldness to to point people to you in the midst of that, to speak of your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.